Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. All right, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to get a chance to look at this passage uh, with us together. This is a time in our week when we put ourselves under the Word of God. We hear it read, and we spend some time thinking through what is its meaning. How do we understand this passage for us and for our lives? So I'm going to pray that God will do that work in our time together. So if you'll, you'll pray with me. God, I thank you for uh, this passage, and I thank you for uh, it's, it's preservation for us today. God, I ask as we as individuals hear these words and we as a church receive them together, that you would do a work in us to understand truth, that you would cause us to think about our own faults, our own sins, our own needy places, and God, we would see you in our lives, that Jesus, you would meet us through this text, and that Spirit, you would cause it to make truth to us clear and plain. We ask that you do this in your name. Amen. So I had a, a little bit of a milestone um, a couple months back here, but it's exciting, so I thought I'd share it here. What better context, right? Um, I've had my driver's license for 25 years. It's kind of exciting, all right? So that's, that's like a big deal, all right? And what I've been contemplating back on this is I remember driver's ed. Do you remember driver's ed? Did you go to that? I don't even know if we still do driver's ed, if that's a thing or not. Um, still a thing? Okay. So I remember going to driver's ed, and... I had, uh, it, was, it was not through my school, it was a separate thing, and so it was like new kids, and you had all that context and interesting stuff happening, and then you had this great driver's ed teacher, because, I mean, if you're a driver's ed teacher, it's, it's a pinnacle in your career, I'm certain, and this guy liked his work, actually, he seemed pretty positive about it, and as he took this job really seriously, he had all these kind of aphorisms or sayings that he would give us throughout the context. And my mind kind of like sucks onto those kind of words and phrases, and I remember them. So the other day I was driving, and I could hear my driver's ed teacher like speaking in my ear. It was kind of crazy. I was like, okay, when you come to an intersection to make a left-hand turn, keep your wheels straight, because if you get rear-ended, that way you'll go forward and not into oncoming traffic. That's the kind of stuff driver's ed teachers teach you, right? So I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh, that's cool. Uh, but sometimes those words kind of like ring out through your mind and you remember them all the time. I, I couldn't like name more than that at the moment. That one just happened recently, so it came to mind. But like when I'm driving my car, my driver's ed teacher is still talking to me in my ear. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe that makes you a little strange. I don't know. But I can remember one particular incident where I had a hard time following the driver ed instructor. It was when I first got my license, finally got it at 16. I was driving back from school one afternoon. And I remember distinctly, I was going by a 7-Eleven, that was very key to me, but I was coming by the 7-Eleven, and I thought, okay, I'm going to cut from the right-hand lane to the left-hand lane. No problem, I'll cut, start going fast, go around the, the slow traffic. And as I started to move my car around, all of a sudden I just had this premonition to look, and there was a car right there, right in the lane where I was going to move my car. Now, I had learned over and over again from my driver's instructor, pretty much every time we were in the car, check your blind spot, check your blind spot. Check your blind spot. But really until I actually saw an entire car sitting in my blind spot, did I recognize, oh, that's why you check your blind spot. That's actually, like a whole car can hide in there. That's absurd, right? Like, wow. 
Uh, so I whipped the wheel back, freaked out as anything, and there was, and I've continued religiously to check my blind spot ever since that point in time. Because I was like, no, a whole car can fit in there. He wasn't lying. It's, it's a real thing. So I think about those words that come out in driver's ed that, that make a big difference, and they kind of echo in my mind. But that was like one where I had to learn through experience and have that come out. Have you ever been in a situation where you're being told information ahead of time so that you'll know how to handle the situation? Right? You're told, hey, this is going to happen. Be prepared for it. This is how you act in these scenarios. The best example I can think of of what that's like is uh, my son is playing uh, youth hockey, and so I'm one of those really invested hockey dads. So all the, all the memes and everything, that's me. Um, you can see it. Glass, yelling, shout, all that. That's me. And so I'm that dad who's trying to tell my kid everything he needs to know about hockey, like in those five minutes before the game starts. Like, here's everything you got to know. Do this. So I started in that arena, and I've now tried to boil myself down to only allowed three ideas to my son before the game. And so that's really hard. I think, okay, what are the most important things? He's not going to remember most of it anyways. But if I only say three things to him, maybe he'll remember them. So <clears throat> this past week... <clears throat> Um, I was focused on these. I thought these were pretty memorable, okay? One of these is stick down, head up, all right? In hockey, that's important. You don't want to get drilled. You've got to keep your head up. You stick down. The puck magically finds your stick if it's on the ice. It's amazing. I told him everything fast because it doesn't matter what you do in hockey. If you're doing it fast, it'll probably work out. You skate fast. You get back fast. Pass fast. Shoot fast. Good things happen. Everything fast. And then I tell him as a defenseman, make a rush a couple times a game. Look for two opportunities when you can just push it. They won't expect it. So these haven't quite worked out yet, but I'm still working on those. <clears throat> a few weeks before that, we talked a lot about don't clear the puck in front of your net. It's very important. As a defenseman, when you go to put the puck out, try to clear your zone. Don't pass in front of your net. And so magically, the other week, I saw him skating. He took the puck, and it was wide open in front of the net. You couldn't believe it. And I saw him hesitate and decide to go backwards, back around the other way, and put it off the boards and around. And I was like, see, it works. This is why I tell him all these things, so that he'll be prepared and know what to do. So you take that one moment where truth is told to you ahead of time, so you can be prepared, so you'll know how to act in that right situation, whether it's knowing not to clear the puck in front of the net, or whether it's remembering to check your blind spot before changing lanes, there's a truth that you need to be prepared for. There's, there's information that's going to make a difference in how you live. The passage that I just read to us a few moments ago are words of preparation for us as disciples. Jesus goes out of his way in these kind of random collection, it feels like, of, of statements here in the start of chapter 17. They're all addressed to his disciples. Luke has joined them together in this location to make a point to ensure that we're prepared for what Jesus is telling us to do as disciples. So there's one big idea that comes from this today, and the idea is that disciples are, pre are prepared by knowing what to expect in the daily following of Jesus. We, as disciples, are prepared by knowing what to expect in our daily following of Jesus. So in this passage, we have about four uh, key ideas that are going to come to us. And so I'm going to go through each four of these that help us understand how do we live as disciples? What do we need to know? This really transcends geography. It goes over history and continues on from the time of the original disciples to us today because they're important. They tell us what it's like when we follow Jesus. So let's jump into our text in verses 17, or excuse me, chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. You have those on the screen. Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin 
are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea and that he should, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So there's two basic parts to this command, but let's get the, the idea out there for us. The key idea from this is temptation is inevitable. Temptation is inevitable. This is a truth that we need to understand. <clears throat> so first is just that idea that sin is going to be, come at us. We shouldn't be surprised. There is a tempter. There is one who is seeking to undo us and stop us in our lives. There's also sin within us. We never really rid ourselves of the sin nature that we have. It's, it's a part of us continually. And we live in a world that's bent, twisted, and tainted around sin. And so that sin is all around us. So it should not come as a surprise that temptation comes at us. So from the passage, we're seeing that we as disciples are supposed to be prepared for that. We're supposed to know that it's coming. If you stand in a batter's box, more than one at bat, you can expect you'll be hit by a pitch. It's going to happen. I'm sure many of you kids, you've played Little League. You've been hit by a pitch. It's going to happen. Similarly, we are going to face sin in our lives. If you play a guitar, you end up with calluses. If you work with your hand, you work with calluses. If you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be tempted to be sin, tempted to sin. Uh, this understanding here seems to be part of, uh, part of the warning here that he wants to get across so that we understand that this temptation that Jesus is speaking of here is not just necessarily everyday temptation. It's not just, am I going to lie or not lie in this exact moment? Or should I hide this? Should I not hide this? Am I going to lust in this scenario? Am I not? That's not what this is entirely encapsulating, although it's true. This also has with it the idea kind of a ratcheted up uh, temptation to defect from Jesus, to turn away and no longer follow Jesus, stumbling to the point of turning away from who Jesus is. That's part of what Jesus is mentioning here in this temptation. So Jesus' original disciples would face this temptation after the, the Garden of Gethsemane and after the crucifixion, certainly. But even today, all of us, as Jesus' disciples, we face crushing temptation to turn away from God. It happens at times in our life when we face maybe the challenges of going away from home and to college. It happens to us when we move from one city to another and find ourselves in a new location. It happens maybe with just the challenges of life when there's financial stress, a medical scare, or uh, a challenge with relationships. In each of these scenarios, we who have claimed to be followers of Jesus and have trusted in him will find ourselves tempted at times, to turn away from God entirely. So this is a scary truth. When we read that, we say, okay, temptation is inevitable. You're telling me that I'm going to face that level of concern, that I will be tempted to come against Jesus. And he follows that up with then not only the sobriety of that concern, but the seriousness of this warning to those who bring that level of temptation on us. So you read those, as we read those words, you may have seen those pretty graphic language that's used, this idea of this millstone being placed on someone. It'd be better that that guy was thrown into the sea and sunk with that millstone around him than that he would disturb or tempt any one of Jesus' disciples. That tells us a level of concern and warning that, that Jesus has for uh, not only those individuals that are involved in that activity of tempting, but also us as we go through it. Jesus is extremely committed to us. He is our Lord. 
And so as we face that temptation, we should know that Jesus not only knows that we will face those scenarios, but he also has such hard and graphic words against any who are involved in that work to pull us away from who God is. So we can feel the love of Jesus, our Lord, in that relationship and knowing he's preparing us. He's telling you, when you face that, don't be surprised, continue to follow me. So how do we take these words and react? When we face one of these, these times of, of challenge in our life and are tempted to either immediately sin in some way or when we face those larger scenarios of, of being tempted to defect, we should note who is tempting us in these situations and realize that this is proof of our true discipleship. The fact that someone is trying to pull you off the rails from following Jesus shouldn't scare you from following Jesus or pull you away. It should tell you you are one of his. It should tell you you're doing exactly what Jesus has told you would happen. You're facing the real temptations that a real disciple of Jesus is facing. So bolster yourself and see yourself as following him. But he continues on to another truth in verses 3 and 4. So let's see these words and think through this. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So our second key truth to be reminded up front is be ready to rebuke and to forgive. Be ready to rebuke and to forgive. The reality is, is that we are in this together. We aren't pursuing spirituality in isolation. Christianity is a team sport, as God has intended it. So sometimes we, we live following Jesus as if we're like an island. We think that uh, we are distinct and separate from all that's going on around us. There's just kind of you, maybe Jesus, on an island, and that's your faith. You've been to an island, you've got this idea, right? It's a piece of land in the middle of the water. There's like no land attached to it. It's by itself. I've been reading, uh, reading a couple books uh, by this guy, uh, Frederick Backman. I think he's like Swedish or something. And he wrote this book called Beartown. And in this book, uh, and in the sequel following it, there's a story of these teenagers who escape to an island. An island plays a very important role in this, this, uh, this bo- these books. And at first, it's uh, two, two guys who are friends playing hockey. And they, in the summer, have this wonderful time on the island where they escape from the pressures, from the hardships, from other people and their perceptions of them. They escape to this little island in their town, and they have a grand summer camping and hanging out together. A little later in the book, two teenage girls also get to enjoy that island separately, and they have a time there where they're able to escape the pressure, the hardship, the challenges that are happening there in their life. So this island serves as this kind of healing location for them where they're able to escape the problems, and they're able to kind of recharge and gear up to face what's the next uh, challenge in the book. When you think about that, it's, it's set up as if this is this recharge that happens. Like it's like a, a, an individual way that this island serves to uh, make them able to handle the next hard thing in their lives. But what's interesting is that they're there on this island with another person. They're there in relation to another. So when they face their distress, when they need their healing, there's someone else that's with them in that scenario. 
And I think that's a truth that we need to remember. It doesn't necessarily mean we have an army that we need to always be associated with, but there's always another individual that we are called to, as believers, to be connected with and going through this. So when we read verses 3 and 4 to us, uh, as disciples, it, it becomes very clear that we aren't alone. That's what those verses are telling us when it tells us about rebuking, repenting, forgiving together. We think that our sin sometimes has no impact on others and that we're all alone in it. Or the sins of others have no impact on us and require no response from us. These verses are telling us we're dead wrong in that understanding. We are with others in our following of Jesus. So, verse 3 starts with a warning to watch ourselves and emphasizes that we're in the same condition as any of those around us. One step, one thought from a sin and ourselves could commit any possible sin on, on the menu. But then, the end of verse 3 assumes and takes for granted that we will be with others in close community. It says, we will see a brother's sin. Like, that's going to happen. You're going to see someone sin. We will notice. It will be obvious to you. You will take note that someone has sinned around you. You will be near enough to someone, and you will recognize that there's sin. And then these verses tell us how we react. How do you handle that scenario? The action that we take in such a circumstance, it uses the word rebuke. This word rebuke is the, the, the Greek word epitemao, which means uh, rebuke. So good, you got a good translation there. Uh, but the idea of the word is, is taking into account the word time, which is where Timothy comes from, so it has the word honor with it. So uh, Timothy means honoring God. This idea of epitemao is, is that there's this honor, this sense of meaning or purpose or value that's put in a rebuke. You think enough of someone to rebuke them. There is a good, there's what someone has done, and so it's worth rebuking that person. There's value in it. So this sense is carried throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament to convey that there's honor for an individual, but then blame or punishment is placed upon one because of their expected honor being missed. Rebuke is generally forbidden in the New Testament, except when that rebuke is brotherly correction. The early church recognized only one situation when a formal uh, epitomeo uh, was in keeping with man. And this is the brotherly correction of a fallen brother. Reproof is accompanied with an awareness of our common guilt before God. So the idea is when you see someone's sin, you care enough about them to tell them, hey, you should get out of that. Don't keep going in that direction. I love you. I'm just as guilty as you are. I could do the same stupid thing tomorrow. Don't do that. Come back. Come back to the right way and follow that. Now, there's some guardrails around this. Some of us might be prone to say, hey, I'd love to be the rebuke police. Could that be awesome? Uh, I'd love, where do I sign up? That, is that a ministry team? Um, would love to be a part of that. <clears throat> the reality is that there are some guardrails and tendencies to think about this, Okay. So this sin should be witnessed, okay? It says you see a brother in that. It's not that you're trying to think of where could there be some hidden sin that I could, like, get my finger on or point out, hey, I bet you're wrong in what you're doing or let me question your motives on this. No, it's that you've witnessed the sin. It says that it's been against you, of all things. So it's not really a witch hunt. It's that you've had the sin toward you and you've, you've been a part of that. And so you're not like on the lookout looking for, hey, here's somebody I can go to rebuke over here. 
No, you're like, okay, I, I went through that. I felt that. I've been a part of this. So I'm not trying to find this hidden or perceived sin or perpetually rebuking people. I've been in this relationship with others. I've had this sin happen. I'm going to speak into this person's life and rebuke them of that sin. These verses tell us that the intended outcome of that rebuke is repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. So if you're going to rebuke, you're looking for repentance. Not to feel good about yourself, not like, hey, hey I, got, I rebuked six people today. That was awesome. The idea is rebuke, and I'm looking for that person to turn, turn back. And then when that person turns back, I don't go, see, man, I, I haven't had any problems in the last couple of weeks. Look at me, I'm doing great. No, I'm immediately forgiving this person because I know I'm in the same state. I have the same propensity within me. So I'm not going to hold that grudge. I'm not going to let that s settle in deep within me to be bitterness over time. Instead, I'm going to see the rebuke, see the sin. I'm going to rebuke. They are going to repent, and I'm going to forgive. That's the, the process that's laid out for us in handling this. So when we think about how to go towards this, the, the, the words even of uh, the, the, the last verse there in verse 4 talks about this is like a perpetual activity. So like as we're with people, as you're in family with others, as you're in community in a church, you are going to be sinned against. People are going to be repenting in front of you, next to you, all around you. You are going to be forgiving people again and again and again. Even if they come to you seven times in a day, <clears throat> you must forgive them. <clears throat> That's tough. I can tell you as a parent, anything that happens seven times in a day is a lot. <clears throat> but when you think about the same sin being repented of and forgiven time after time again, that tells you what this should look like on an ongoing basis because that probably isn't going to happen very often, that it's going to be the same sin confessed to you, asked for forgiveness seven times in a single day. But it may be many times over a course of months and years as we live and follow Jesus. So when we think about what this means for us, what we're going for together is a life of holiness. This means we're shown our sin in our life by the Spirit or by a brother or sister. Our response is to repent. There are no rock stars here at Seven Mile Road. and Any one of us can stumble on just about any sin. And we need to repent of it quickly, and then we need to forgive one another and move forward. <clears throat> These are those essential Truths that Jesus wanted to get across to his disciples, that they wouldn't miss this. He's preparing them. Hey, this is how, what it's going to be like. When you follow me, get ready to rebuke others and be ready to forgive. <clears throat> and then number three, verses five and six. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. <clears throat> the disciples begin by asking Jesus to increase their faith. Look at Jesus' answer. <clears throat> he shifts the focus. Faith is not just a matter of quantity, as if you could increase that amount, but it's really the presence of faith. A little bit of genuine faith can accomplish a great deal. It's the total absence of faith that, that prevents <clears throat> excuse me, results. He makes a, a simile here to make us understand this. He says, uh, in the simile, the comparison of a grain of a mustard seed and its small quantity of faith. And yet it has the power <clears throat> to uproot and move a mulberry tree to the sea. 
and if you will, uh, it would obey you and that much faith. So you see that comparison that he's making. So Jesus is saying the way to increase our faith is simply to have it and watch it produce significant results. So this is, is maybe different for us, maybe something we don't think a lot on, but faith is a noun in English, and as we think about uh, its function here, we often will use the verbs of trusting or believing. You don't, like, have faith at something. You can kind of say that, but we'd say, oh, I trust in that, I believe in that. That's, that's what we mean by faith. <clears throat> we see throughout the Gospels that belief is referenced not in relationship to miracles, but as a pop, proper response to the preaching of the gospel. Thus, belief becomes almost synonymous with being a disciple. So our key truth from this is that possessing faith is powerful. Possessing faith is powerful. Faith is what disciples have. Disciples believe Jesus. And this faith, this believing in Jesus is powerful for us. So he just has us as this little aside in the, this list of things that he's going through, this little exchange. You see it in the other Gospels with similar uh, situations. So I'm going to imagine it came up maybe multiple times. They'd see Jesus do something amazing. They'd hear him say something astounding, and they'd say, whoa, increase our faith, Jesus. I don't know what to do with that. That's a, that what am I supposed to do with that? And Jesus steers them back to understand, if you have faith, that's what matters. It's not that you need more of it. It's not that you need to be ready to do something different. It's that having faith actually makes you powerful. So how do we see this power of faith in our lives? We will want to hear the words of the New Testament on what faith does for the believer. The very possession of faith in Jesus, the act of believing Jesus, brings powerful results. So here's just a few of these. Faith gives the believer confidence for unseen realities, Hebrews 11.1. Faith countermands how we live, as we live by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5.7. Faith gives us hope and joy by the power of the Spirit, Romans 15.13. Faith gives us assurance when we ask of God in prayer, not like a doubter, James 1.6. Faith can protect the believer to stand against evil forces, Ephesians 6.16. Faith allows us to see the glory of God in spite of the hard and hurtful, John eleven forty. Faith opens up possibilities otherwise not expected, Mark nine twenty three, and faith grants eternal life, John eleven twenty five through twenty six. So when we look at it. Faith does a ton. Faith is what empowers us for so much of what we enjoy from our New Testament teaching. So uprooting a mulberry tree. Yeah, there's some power there. Uh, I suppose we could get really enamored with that and talk about the mulberry tree and the sea and all that. But really what we're saying is that believing in Jesus to do great things that would otherwise be hard for the original disciples and for us is available to us through faith. So we can't lack the understanding that our faith is what gives us the power to live the Christian life, to be a follower of Jesus. It gives us so much more. So as you lean into Jesus... As you feel the challenges of life and you double down on trusting Jesus, you're actually empowered to continue to live and make a following of Jesus more and more a part of your life and see that obedience come through to you. It builds that loyalty. But that takes us to our, our last section. So we got the first three. Go to number four, verses seven through ten. Got a little one here uh, to read through, so let's, let's hit this one. Uh, look on the screen with me. 
Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So we have here a a mini parable that Jesus gives us to convey one idea to us, and that's that we are to do our duty as servants. Do your duty as servants. Humble servants remember their place and do their duty. The depiction here that we have in this this mini parable is uh, a normal Middle Eastern context in which a servant is doing the work of his master. It, it seems different for us to think of a servant in this context, and you wonder, like, okay, like how wealthy, how important is this person with us? No, like just about everybody in an Eastern context would have a servant, even on, down to the very kind of lower middle class end of society would have servants. It would just be part of life. They would help to feed and employ them. The poorest of the poor would put their, their children out for this work so that they would be fed. They would be cared for by a master. So it was very normal, uh, a little distance from our life and our way of living. But that's the situation here. So the disciples wouldn't have known about servants. They may or may not have had some themselves. Some of them might have in their families. But as they have these servants, Jesus speaks about kind of typically how should a servant be understood and, and what are kind of some of the key tasks. So verse 7 here speaks of uh, kind of a cultural oddity. And it's, it should be very apparent from the language that we have in front of us. He's saying, you don't invite your servant in for a meal after he works for you. It's not what you do. He's working for you. You don't invite him in. Instead, in verse 8, he says the servant would be the one preparing your meal because you're the master. So you eat first, then the servant eats. Like, that's how things work in the world. That's kind of what he's saying in verses 7 and 8. That's the normal flow. Then in verse 9, he says, and he shows that the act of the servant doing what he's supposed to do isn't particularly praiseworthy or requiring thanks. It's what is expected of a servant to his master. It's duty. It's duty acknowledging the higher rank of the master. Now we hear a parable like this, and we can feel a little awkward around it or out of place. It sound, doesn't particularly sound like the magnanimous management principles that we encounter by today's gurus, right? Uh, I think this parable flies exactly the opposite with Simon Sinek's advice of his best-selling management book, Leaders Eat Last. Um, seems to be the opposite here of what this parable is talking about. So. We're at odds with that. It it rubs us the wrong way. You read it, and if you're reading it correctly, it's kind of be like, I don't really kind of like that. Why is he acting like this? What do I do with this? How do we make sense of this with the words of Jesus elsewhere around his servanthood, right? Such as Mark 10.45 that says that Jesus was not coming to be served, but to serve. Or Matthew 20.26 that says, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. So you would think... Jesus would talk about himself being lowly and how he served others and do all that. And yes, we have that as a theme of the Bible. Don't miss it. That's in many other passages. It's just not here in this parable. So what is the point that Jesus is trying to make here? He is among them, and he does serve them. He is their servant, but at the same time, he's still their master. And they need to remember who they are servants of or of whom they are servants Thus, this parable in Luke is crucial in its presentation of Jesus as a master to whom his servants owe loyalty and obedience. So there isn't this 
question of indebtedness of a servant, uh, of the master to a servant. It's not like the servant goes out, does a good day's work, and now the master is obliged to have to give him a reward. No, the servant's doing the task he was given, and the master cares for him. When we compare this to salvation, it's not that we do good things and then God gives us our salvation. The idea is that, no, our master has taken responsibility for us. He cares for us, and we gladly serve him, and he will take care of us. We don't earn what we're getting. The servants are completely dependent on the master, as are we. So God is the master of the believer. Jesus is the master, is present to his disciples, and he's actually fulfilling the commands that we're supposed to fulfill. We're not even very good servants in reality. So we see our position as servants, but we actually don't even keep all the commands that God gave us to do. We go out in the fields and we muck it up. We don't get anything right. We seem to mess up from time to time and time again and don't do it the right way, don't do what we were asked to do. We find ourselves continually in the wrong. And yet God sent his son Jesus as a perfect servant. He fulfilled our duties. He did them in perfect obedience and loyalty to the Father. And as he did that, he actually exchanges his wages for our poor actions. So we think about what Jesus does, we see not a duty that's on us like we have to fulfill it or we fail. The reaction is, is no, we see ourselves as servants under a gentle and loving Lord who's called us to follow him, so much so that he even fulfills that effort that's on us. But don't lose our place. We need to see ourselves as servants. Too often we want to buck that off, see ourselves as good people who are able to do good things. And isn't it so great that God loved us? Isn't it so great that he's brought us in to be his followers? But the reality is, is that we're, we're losing sight of what we're doing. The proper relationship of Jesus and us gets, gets kind of out of whack. When we're following Jesus, we think about how to apply this. We can't lose sight of who we are following. Christianity is not a self-important religious teaching it re- that encourages us to just live our best life now or find prosperity by just declaring everything positive in our lives. It's really about us. It's not really about us. No, Christianity is about following Jesus. He sets the course. He determines the pace. Jesus gives the tasks, and we do our duty. We're loyal to him, and we obey him. The less popular message of master and duty is the social antidote to when personal freedom and individual preference dominate everyone's thinking. A disciple of Jesus from this parable is reminded It's not about what I get to do and what I want. It's about who Jesus is and what he's commanded of me. So this shouldn't make our shoulders bend out of shape because we think, oh, how can this be true? How can this master speak to me? How can I put myself under Jesus? No, we should be reminded we know a kind and gentle Savior. He's still the Lord of the universe, and that's who we gladly follow. So let's not lose sight of what he's called us to do in our duty. So we've had these four basic teachings that come at us that we're supposed to be prepared for living on a day-to-day basis as we understand what it means to follow Jesus. Simple truths laid out, but the idea is we shouldn't be caught off guard and we should be prepared for all the work that God calls us to do.